That's good. Thank you. Welcome back. Episode number 83, the Professor Penn Podcast. David Penn here welcoming you back, wishing you a happy new year. This is our New Year's show because when we come back next week, oh, it's going to be the potent 2024. We're winding down here in an alleged week of relaxation and peace which is uh, a scam because uh, quite contrarily, the world is escalating towards a calamity in the Middle East, which we're going to talk about in a minute. For those of you who have a love of music, you know, if you know this uh, band, Cold Blood, this was from 1973. Uh, This is called Kissing My Love, this opening. You can listen to it again. That's Lydia Pence. She is famous within certain circles. You got to get off the beaten path to know about Lydia Pence. And she inspired people like Bonnie Raitt. And I'm sure many people here don't know Bonnie Raitt. These were great women of the blues. Great women of the blues. This was 1973. And I I played this for a minute because we're going to talk about Richard Nixon and Watergate today. In 1973, people had distractions. I mean, that's a distraction. Going to see Lydia Pence and listening to that kind of a stone groove and dancing, hey, who cares what the government's doing, right? We were free for the first time. We were getting free of the Vietnam War, free of the draft. People were high as, high as, well, high. They were high. And the sex was free. I mean, it was a wild time. I was there. I was in the middle of it. I was playing music. And I love Cold Blood. And if you know that band, put it in the live chat. We love the live chat. It's the 26th this morning of December. This is going to post up on the Thursday night, the 27th. A little housekeeping here. Royce and I did a family and friends episode on Tuesday. And we we ran so long because we were drinking McAllen. that when it came time to spin it up and get it posted up in time for Tuesday night, We couldn't get it done, so that's going to play on Friday night. That's this Friday night, which is going to be, I want to get the dates right, that's going to post up on the 29th, December 29th, 9 p.m. Please call me crazy, Royce White and David Penn. We're going to have a conversation. When I have these conversations with Royce, you know, I I never know what happened. It's, uh, It's quite a challenge to keep up with this young man. He's a political superstar in the making. And I'm very blessed and fortunate to be uh, a friend of his and be working with him. It's great. He has a lot of very, um, I would say, very creative thinking about politics. And he's not afraid to tell me I'm wrong, which I like. He's been doing it since the first day we met. And it's very thought-provoking. I bl- And I'm urging all of you, get around people that push you intellectually and physically and emotionally. That's how we grow through stress. You know, there's a lot of talk about stress. You know, here's a bad stress. When I have anxiety and worry and concern, that's a measure of my faithlessness. That is a sin. And I thank God, Master and King of all worlds, for helping me grow my faith. I need help. As we all do, 
We need help. We need supernatural help, and we can ask for it, and we can get it. But stress, the stress model to grow, to get stronger, that, that's a fact of life. I mean, we, we grow under stress. Doesn't mean we have to have anxiety and worry about it. It means we have to bear up with prayer and thanksgiving under the challenges that confront us. And those challenges are part of refining us and making us whole people, real people, not fragmentary people, real whole people. That's what we want to be as Americans, real American people. I want to thank Free People Radio, Truth Seeking Media. Yes, we're here. FreePeopleRadio.com. Go to the store. It's the holidays. The quid pro quo. You put your credit card number in, and we send you cool stuff, and we need your support. So please, if you like the content, go to the store. Click the subscribe button. Bring new people. Bring new people. Because as you know, I have a very loyal and very engaged audience, small audience, because we work, you know, I want to be entertaining, but we're really working on difficult ideas. I'm working on them with you together, trying to figure things out. You know, it's not, uh, it's not a mass market. It's a specific market for people that are intellectually alive, spiritually alive, politically motivated to build a movement of people that are going to change the country. That's what we're doing. So I have an appeal. If you are a member of the Minnesota Republican Party, if you are a state central committee delegate, please get in touch with me. We are going to unite the tribe here in Minnesota. We're going to get all the like-minded people in the party together through free people. We're going to do it. We're going to meet regular, and we are going to take out the neocons and the posers and the Democrats that are running the Minnesota Republican Party. We're going to replace those people through a constitutional process, and that would be the Constitution of the Minnesota Republican Party, which, interestingly, those people are changing the rules every time we get around the corner. Oh, new rules, new rules. You know what we need? New people. So we're going to get together, and, you know, David Hahn and Alex Plackish and Barb Sutter, you're, your spies are watching, they're reporting. You know, you can't stop the people. You can try to stop them. But if the people really get motivated and get organized, you're going to be retired. You're just going to be retired. I'm not saying you can't be in the party. You're just not going to lead because you're leading us to perdition, and we know it, and we see it in all of the news. Precinctstrategy.com, Dan Schultz. Dan has been a a pathfinder, a pace setter. We're going to give them respect. We're going to ask everybody to go to precinctstrategy.com because from whatever state you're living and you're watching, geez, I got people coming in from other countries now saying, oh, hello from, uh, trying to remember, uh, Costa Rica. Had a Costa Rican. I got an Australian audience. It's fantastic. You know, this kind of political activism works everywhere, everywhere. The people are politics, and politics are the people. And to the extent our leaders can get us to go to sleep, they got free reign to do whatever they want to. And here's a great one. We live in a democracy, 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 democracy. Every time I turn on the television, protecting our democracy, 
We don't live in a democracy. We live in a republic. These people are college professors who know the power of words, and they wield these words like weapons, weapons of ideological warfare, info war. You know, a democracy, that's mob rule. That's 50 plus one. And if we vote for it, it must be right, must be good, must be true. Now, we vote for things all the time that are crazy, that are bad for us, that are creating unhealth, actual unhealth in our bodies, in our minds, in our souls. And, you know, this we're going to talk about this today with President Nixon. He's a very emblematic case of someone who has been characterized in a certain fashion, and that's obscured the totality of his legacy. And I'm no fan of Nixon. I'm just going back through the history with you and going, whoa, where did this come from? How did we come up with this idea? I was there. I remember Nixon. Do you remember Nixon? If you were in consciousness in 1973 during Watergate, put in a live chat because the rest of you are reading somebody else's account of it. I was there. I was in the car driving back from a camping trip with my father, who was a rabid Nixon hater for obvious reasons. He was a leftist. Listening to uh, Congressman Sam Irvin, who was in charge of the Watergate Committee, they were, you know, interrogating these uh, administration figures who were involved in this alleged cover-up. We're going to talk about it today. A new year is coming. I want to wish you a happy and healthy new year. Uh, for me, this year is going to be a lot about faith. I, You know, I've had the good fortune of having experiences in my life which have uh, brought me close to the Lord. And uh, the closer I get, the farther I have to go. Uh, I become more ambitious over time because that's just the natural way. I mean, when you have things that you accomplish and you you start to get a little bit of success with faith, and then these ideas come to you, these creative ideas, and you know that they're coming from a supernatural place because I'm not smart enough to think it up. And then I have to make it happen, and then there's a big gap between having the idea and seeing it into physical reality. It's a big gap. Uh, there are so many issues in my life right now that require me to have faith. And I'm not talking about me because I want to talk about me. I'm talking about me because I'm your lab rat. You know, you're making an inventory in your, in your mind. What do I want to accomplish spiritually in 2024? And let's presume that we're going to be here together at the end of 2024 and be having a New, Year, a New Year's episode for 2025. We're just going to presume that because a lot of people, when I'm reading the social media, don't have a lot of confidence in that. But how can we live our lives like that? You know, um, I'm in really good health, really good health. And uh, in a lot of ways, I'm as, as good as I was when I was in my 20s. My young producer, if we got into the ring, it wouldn't last very long for him. But it's an illusion because I'm getting older and, you know, boom, I could be gone tomorrow. Uh, and that's for everybody. I mean, you could be 25 years old and 
here today and gone tomorrow. We're all uh, living to some degree with a desire to enhance our well-being and to survive. I mean, even if we're a fall-down, staggering drunk, we have strategies to maintain our well-being, as twisted as they might be. We have these strategies, but the greatest strategy that I need to work on is my faith. Because if I have my faith, whatever happens in the physical reality we call uh, this world, whatever happens, I'm going to have the resources, the spiritual resources, to deal with it up until the moment of my passing. And I was I was talking to a friend of mine, and you know this was a is a faithless person allegedly. I don't believe it. I think I think this person is fronted. Doesn't really because you know once you say you have faith, oh, now you're dependent on God. That requires faith. And then if things don't work out the way you envision them, because you know hey it's your plan right. You go, oh, God must not love me. I didn't get what I wanted. Well, that's no reason to give up on faith. That's a reason to take an inventory about what you're asking for. The prayer of faith, the things that we can pray for, it's clearly delineated in the Bible. You know, and I don't want to preach. I just want to say there's a way to do things correctly and there's a way to do things incorrectly. And the thing that I am working on is my faithlessness, which comes out in my anxiety because I am stretched out over my skis, as are many people in this country, including our country in total. We're out over our skis. And why do I say that? $35 trillion in debt will come up real quick early next year. The border's wide open to the biggest invasion in American history. And we're in an endless war that's heating up that we're going to talk about. So the faith part, the the submission part, the, the desire to have God work with me, to give over and to cast my, my cares and my concerns and my anxieties onto God, that's purely scriptural, scriptural. And when I claim something, when I claim it, I mean it. Because it says, whatsoever you wish for when you pray, believe you've received it and ye shall have it. And if you believe in the scripture, you believe in that. So let's cast the mountain into the sea and defeat the forces of evil that have surrounded us, encircled us, beguiled us, confused us and put us to this moment in world history where we're about to be enslaved. And we need that supernatural power to come through us all as American citizens to give us the strength and the wisdom and the discernment to maintain our freedom in this great republic. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the light and the dark. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating me in your image. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you 
for making me an American. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me free. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for healing the blind. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for feeding the people. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for releasing the bound. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for raising up the downtrodden. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the heavens and earth. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for providing for all my needs. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for directing my path. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for our American courage. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for crowning America with glory. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for restoring strength to the weary. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for sending your only begotten Son to die on the cross that I might be saved. Forgive us, Father, for we have sinned. Pardon us, our King, for we have willfully transgressed. For you pardon and forgive. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds, who is gracious and ever willing to forgive. Can you please play number one? As the President of the United States, it's my tremendous honor to finally wish America and the world a very Merry Christmas. For Christians, this is a holy season, the celebration of the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. More than 2,000 years ago, the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary. He said, do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. The angel told her that she would give birth to a baby boy, Jesus, who would be called the Son of the Most High. Nine months later, Christ was born in the town of Bethlehem. The Son of God came into the world in a humble stable. Whatever our beliefs, we know that the birth of Jesus Christ and the story of this incredible life forever changed the course of human history. There's hardly an aspect of our lives today that his life has not touched art, music, culture, law, and our respect for the sacred dignity of every person everywhere in the world. At Christmas, we give thanks to God and that God sent his only son to die for us and to offer everlasting peace to all humanity. And we recognize that the real spirit of Christmas is not what we have. It's about who we are. Each one of us is a child of God. That is the true source of joy this time of the year. That is what makes every Christmas merry. Above all, during the sacred season, our souls are full of thanks and praise for Almighty God for sending us Christ, His Son, to redeem the world. Tonight, we ask that God will continue to bless this nation, and we pray that He will grant every American family a Christmas season full of joy, hope, and peace. You know, President Trump is uh, beset on all sides by evil men. 
And he is certainly a man who has had great success uh, financially and politically and in many other ways. And it's a trap to be that successful. You can start to fall in love with yourself. And he has certainly, to me, evidenced that kind of behavior in some of the things that he said and uh, some of the things that he does. I mean, he is a very complex and, and troubling uh, personality. But he's now fighting for his freedom, for his survival, and he's fighting for the American people. Just He's just given over to it. He's older. I mean, I think he's going to be 78 years old if he's not 78. He's, you know, he's doing something he doesn't need to do. He's doing it for complex reasons, of course, which I do not understand all the reasons. I can only look at the outside and say, wow, this guy is standing up for a set of ideas that I resonate with. And he's under such great attack for holding these ideas. This is going to be part of our theme today. It's somewhat like Nixon. Trump is interested in deconstructing the administrative state or what has become called the deep state. And they're fighting them tooth and nail. I mean, there's no, this is a, this is a battle where one side wins and the other side loses. And he's under such duress. He's coming, I think, to rely on his faith. He's walking by faith and not by sight. Because if he walked by sight, how could he get up in the morning? My gosh, the guy's got 90, 90 charges on him around the country. He's in trials everywhere. Not to, and that's before you get to the physical danger that he's in. So this is a very interesting transition and a very public figure. And to watch President Trump wax so eloquent on religious issues, to speak so fervently, this has always been my hope that he would become humbled in the battle that he finds himself in. And if he does that, if he becomes humbled in this battle, the American people are going to embrace him and he will generate the kind of landslide in November of 2024 that we need to set our country on a new course. But of course, that new course is threatened in so many different ways. We're just going to pick a couple of them today. War at sea. We're going to talk about the war at sea. Now, I watch the news, and I'm sure you watch the news too, and we're seeing a group called the Houthis. The Houthis in a country called Yemen. They're Islamic. It's an Islamic governance in Yemen. And Yemen is uh, positioned right at the mouth of a strategic waterway that's the entrance to the Red Sea. And they've started, you know, attacking the shipping that goes through the Red Sea and through the Suez Canal, which is the fastest way, and it's a man-made way, to get from the uh, Asia uh, manufacturing centers to Europe. And by attacking the shipping in this region, uh, it's a very big disruption of the international trade, very big. And our country, the United States of America, the 
so-called leader of the free world, the policeman, with our 335-ship Navy, we have big assets in the area, and we have allies, and there's been an operation formed called um, Operation Prosperity Guardian. And the idea of this is to guard the vessels as they make their transits through the Suez Canal and also through the Straits of Hormuz, which is also in the region, through which some maybe 30 or 35% of the world's oil supply flows. And these are what are called maritime choke points. Choke points. They're, you can go look it up. There's choke points throughout the world. You know, the Panama Canal, the Malacca Straits. These are very narrow passageways in the oceans, in the seas, through which large volumes of uh, shipping pass through, and it would be very easy to shut down or to occlude international trade by attacking in these regions. And that's just what the Houthis are doing. The Houthis are an Iranian proxy, just like Hezbollah. Uh, I don't really believe Hamas is a, a, an Iranian proxy, but they're part of the resistance. And what are they resisting? Well, in their minds, they're resisting, you know, Satanism, America being the great Satan and Israel being the little Satan. And we've got this big war going on in the Gaza, which is showing no signs of abating. Uh, there's maybe 30, close to 30,000 Palestinians that have been killed now. I mean, it's a knockdown drag out. They're eliminating uh, Hamas as a political and military force in the Gaza. And at the same time, they're moving the Gazans out of Gaza. I mean, it's, and I got people coming to my social media and they're accusing me of being anti-Israel and an anti-Semite. I'm just reporting the news. I am just reporting the news as I see it from my street corner. And on my street corner, I see a massive escalation that is not really being reported in the news. The Houthis are attacking international shipping. This is forcing the diversion of shipping from the Suez Canal. Instead, these ships are going around the Horn of Africa. It's adding a lot of time to the transits. It's adding a lot of risk to shipping. It's adding a lot of fuel cost to the shipping. In fact, what's happened already has added to the consumption of, of oil, about 550,000 barrels of oil per day of additional consumption to take these boats instead of going through the Suez Canal, they're going around the Horn of Africa. Ocean shipping rates are way up, way up, way up, way up. I've heard rumors, I don't know how, you know, if, the, if this is going to stabilize, but it was about 2400 bucks to get a 40-foot high-cube container, which is how goods are moved through the world, from Asia to England, and I heard it's $10,000, and I know for a fact here at TireGet.com, where you can go to get a great deal on tires, everything you need in tires, except the price is going to go up, not because of Professor Penn, but because ocean shipping rates are increasing quickly, quickly because of this disruption. The Houthis have their finger on the trigger, and that's disrupting the system of international trade. Now, you know, the Chinese have got a thing called Belt and Road, and that was established for many reasons, but one of the primary reasons was to avoid 
the control of the high seas by the Anglo-American naval empire. Because that's what we are. We're essentially a naval empire. This goes back to the English. This goes back 500 years. The movement of goods on the seas is protected by navies. That's why the navies are there, to protect the trade, right? That's what they tell us. And the Chinese said, whoa, we don't want to compete with that. We're going to move it by land, rail, truck, infrastructure, and they're building through all these countries to try to get their goods overland all the way to Europe. But guess what we've learned? A well-placed explosive device under the Nord Stream 2 pipeline destroyed a multi-billion dollar piece of fixed physical infrastructure. And the Chinese see that. I mean, they knew it, but it was kind of far away. Like, who thought that someone, someone, who was the someone? We should play all of the American political officials that said that if they didn't get their way, Nord Stream was going to go bye-bye. So the fingerprint on the gun is we the people, our elected representatives. I personally had no interest in destroying that Nord Stream pipeline. But, you know, we live in a democracy now, not, not a republic. So if the people vote for mass murderers and crazy people, hey, we're going to get them. 1933, the German people elected Hitler to power. Hey, 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 this is one of the themes of the podcast. Let's get serious about the military-industrial complex and its relationship to governance and the medical-industrial complex and the media-industrial complex and the health and welfare-industrial complex. I mean, this whole thing has aggregated up into a superstructure of power and control that we sitting down here watching cold blood and that super jam, we don't even want to pay attention to it. I don't want to say that great music is a distraction, but it sure can be. It sure can be. Just like video games, reels, Pornhub, or whatever else your thing is, if it's got you distracted right now, your ass is on the line. If you go and look closely, you're going to see that the United States military is active throughout the region now as if we're at war, not as if we are at war. We, we the people, are at war. Our military is attacking Iranian proxies in Iraq. Iranian proxies are attacking our land-based military. They're firing rockets and, and drones at our ships, at commercial shipping. This is going to cause inflation, and it's escalating, escalating escalating. We're getting very close to a general war in the Middle East with, of course, an uncertain outcome. One would think, one would think that the uh, coalition of the United Nations, so to speak, has more than enough military firepower and capability to defeat the Houthis. How about the Iranians? What are the Iranians going to do? And what about the Russians and the Chinese that are allied with them? And this is where it gets really bent in on itself. American naval power is actually protecting the supply of oil that goes from Iran through the Straits of Hormuz, a maritime choke point, 
to the Chinese. The Chinese have a big oil and gas deal with the Iranians and with other Middle Eastern countries like Saudi Arabia. And here we are, our tax dollars, our military is protecting the Chinese supply of energy. Isn't that great? We're going to talk about Nixon today and Nixon in China. There's things here that we, the people, don't understand. But one thing we, we are told, our Navy is to protect international trade. Great. Our Navy, hundreds of boats, are all around this region keeping these choke points open for international trade. But you know what? This is very threatening because what opens can close. You know, the Hooties are playing with closing these choke points today. But do you think the Chinese don't know that the American, the U.S. Navy could close those choke points and starve the Chinese of energy the same way we starved the Japanese of energy, which forced, go back, we're going to look at history. Now I got next week's podcast has popped into my mind. You know, President Roosevelt started, to, this is in the late 30s, because the Japanese empire was quite expansionist. And of course, our great corporations were trading with the Japanese. And they were starting to invade other countries like China, which was where World War II started, an invasion of China by the Japanese. And they started to interdict and to reduce the supply of oil that was going to Japan. And the Japanese said, okay, it's on, baby. You can't cut us off from the oil. So every action has a reaction. So right now, we're keeping the flow of energy open to China. But at any moment, it could be stopped. And that would be a certain trigger for a conflict. We need to think these things through. We need to get over the next hill. We need to make important issues part of our political discourse. One of the great moves our leaders are making is they're getting us into the weeds with a bunch of stuff. It's important, but it's not my ass. I'm not saying some of these culture war issues are not important. They're important. But those issues are solved upstream of politics within me, Professor Penn, American citizen, by finding my faith and recognizing that to have faith, there's a reason for it, which is to be in communion with God, a creator who granted me life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, a creator that granted me life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as was enshrined in our founding documents. If I'm going to have that relationship with the creator that granted me life, I have to do certain things. If I'm not going to do those things, I'm not going to have that relationship. One of those things that I have to do this year is cast my anxieties and my fears upon the Lord because he can handle it. I can't. All it does is gum me up so I can't be in communion. And I want to be, I have to be, I must be because the work I'm doing right here with you. So we as the American people have got to get focused on really important issues. The border's open. The American nationalist believes in a country with borders and with citizens that have spiritual borders that we as citizens create for ourselves 
because it's for our well-being. We've looked around at what's happened in the last 50 years because the seals have been broken. We can do drugs. It's legal. We can do any kind of th- thing we want sexually. It's accepted. We don't have to work. It's accepted. I mean, there's so many things that we do as a natural matter of American life that when I was a young person, nobody did. And if you did it, you were ostracized. Oh, no, we don't want anybody to get ostracized. That would be discriminatory. As if telling someone that having a set of values that lead to a decent, well life is somehow discriminatory. It is not discriminatory to tell people the truth. Every American citizen is due the protections of our Constitution. We all have constitutional rights. We have free will. But to tell people that some choices make you ill is no, not, it's not okay. It's not okay. Okay, great. So we've been sucked down into a set of arguments that obscure our vision on we need to have borders, physical borders, and we need to have internal spiritual borders that we, with our own free will, adopt by ourselves. It cannot be legislated. Spiritual borders cannot be legislated. They must be a matter of a faith proposition. And when every American citizen understands that the European experience is faithless and Darwinist, and the American experience is faith-filled and in communion with God, that that's the difference in our traditions, and that the Europeans infiltrated and occupied us at the level of our educational institutions to create a prison for our minds because we were free, and they didn't want that. They didn't want us to be free because it brought about self-sufficiency, independence. It limited the size and scope of governance. It made people self-reliant. Oh, no, they didn't want that. So they infiltrated our minds through our educational process and obscured the importance of physical borders and spiritual borders. That's a key issue. That is a key issue. Debt, the enslavement of debt. We're $34 trillion, soon to be $35 trillion. I'm going to tell you next year, Kevin McCarthy and Tom Emmer and the Republican Congress have left us a recipe for one of the biggest debt explosions in American history in 2024. And there's nothing that can be done to stop it, and nothing will stop it, and nobody's going to talk about it again until January 2nd, 2025. Borders and debt. We need borders, spiritual borders and physical borders. we got to turn this debt into equity, which we can do as the American people, and these forever wars that we are at the center of, which keeps us continually poor, poor. Let's look at all these issues. Open borders, bring in millions and millions of people. They get education, they get health care, they get benefits. It, where does that money come from? From we the people, the American citizens, makes us poor. Makes us poor. Open borders makes us poor spiritually and makes us poor economically. That's a key issue. We got to get with that issue. Debt. 
We're massively in debt. Does that not make us poor? Yes, it does. And forever wars, nothing makes you more poor than a war. So everything that our government is doing, doing is generating poverty for we the people. Well, people look around, geez, all the restaurants off roll, the cars, new car, everything's looking great. You know how you go bankrupt? Really slow and then all at once. And what we need now is a change of direction. And that's what we're working on. But these problems go back, they go back, they go back, 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 back. They go back to the way back. I want to talk about Richard Nixon, President Richard Nixon, who left, he's the only American president to ever resign. He resigned in shame over a scandal called Watergate. I mean, Elia, have you ever heard of Watergate? Do you know what it is? Kind of knows what it is. We're going to get into this now. Let's play a little bit about Nixon, but before we get into it, let's set the stage. Richard Nixon is a reviled character in American political history. I remember him very, very well. Nixon came up with a, a constituency called the Silent Majority. Who were the people in the silent majority. Well, let me tell you who they were. They were Democrats, Democrats, who became disaffected with the Democrat Party because President Johnson preferred enhanced rights and equal, more equal access to opportunity upon the black community. This silent majority, a lot of them were racists, racists of the highest order, and they became disaffected with the Democrat because of the Civil Rights Act of 1965, and they jumped ship. Some of them went with George Wallace, who was an open racist of the highest order. We've played some of his stuff. Oh, man, this guy wasn't holding back. And then a lot of them went with President Nixon, voted for Nixon in 68 and then again in 72, because they had abandoned the Democrat Party because they felt that the Democrat Party had abandoned their white supremacist apartheid way of life. So Nixon was the first one to put together this silent majority, which later on became the moral memorial majority, which today, <laughs> President Penn is a white Christo nationalist. Nah, hey, I know if you're watching me in the live chat and you're with the security state, no, I am not a white Christo nationalist. I'm a Jewish man. I am a nationalist, and I will not be labeled as a danger to my country because I am not a danger to my country. But this group of Christians, this is why I played the President Trump prayer at the beginning. The people that control our government do not want human beings that have faith to have power, which is silly because faith is power. And that's why they do so much to undermine our faith. And Nixon was really overtly interested in coalescing this movement of Christians what he called the silent majority, as a bastion against the hippies and the drug doers and the rock and rollers and the, you know, the black civil rights movement and the gay civil rights movement and the women's rights movement. I mean, the 60s was such a powerful period of change, it was mind-boggling. The seals got broken. I was there. And Nixon was a very ardent anti-communist. 
he was a a Republican in the Republican sense of the word. This guy went back to the way back. We must look back at our history and understand. Let me try this. Ellie, do you know a term called the New Deal? You do. Good. You know where it came from? I'm going to tell you. We had a very big depression here that started with the stock market crash in 1929. I mean, the country was really screwed up by this. And we had a president that was elected in 1932, Franklin Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, who started a series of reforms of the country's infrastructure, political infrastructure, and he created a permanent bureaucratic state which gave the people a new deal. The starting of Social Security and Medicare and all kinds of programs where the government got involved in the economic lives of individual citizens. That was brand new. And that started in a crisis, the Great Depression, and then that was followed up by the Great War, World War II, and then we had the Korean War, and then we had the Vietnam War, and boom, here comes Nixon, who grew up over this period of time. And Nixon went into power in 1968, and in his writings and in his speeches, he said very directly that his presidency was the last chance to deconstruct the administrative state. And his presidency not only was aimed at deconstructing the administrative state, it was, end, it was aimed at ending the endless war. So who was Nixon? Well, he was a complex figure. I'm not saying he's a simple guy. In fact, I was on with Royce, and Royce took me to the woodshed on, on Nixon because he said, go to Wikipedia. And there was uh, Nixon and Reagan sitting at a meeting at the, at the Bohemian Grove. Who's, who's Nixon, who's Reagan, and what's Bohemian Grove? You know, these are things that are complex. We have to sort through them very slowly and carefully. But he was a, he was a, a, a rich person in, in thought and in deed. And he was interested in deconstructing the administrative state. And at that time, in 1968, I remember seeing images of what they called Red China, of, of huge formations of Chinese and military drill, and they were, seemed mindless like drones, and it was terrifying. And, of course, it was meant to be terrifying because we had this Republican individuality and, and uh, individual liberty and freedom, and here's this other country, and everybody's doing the same, thinking the same, and it was scary. And those Chinese people had, you know, they fought a war with the United States, a proxy war in Korea, which was not really a proxy war. I mean, in that war, the Chinese military came across the border and there was a direct confrontation where millions of people died between the U.S. military and the Chinese military. And then there was a proxy war in Vietnam and Nixon was interested in ending that war and he did end that war. And he ended the draft in 1973. But Nixon viewed a billion people, the Chinese people, as being cut off from the community of nations as a non-sustainable kind of political organization of the world. And when we look back on this, we talk about Nixon opening China in very negative terms because we see it with hindsight. 
how it was appropriated by forces who may have been there at the start to exploit it. We don't know. We're going to have to research it together. But there was a nobility in Nixon's desire to confront an administrative state and a military-industrial complex that its raison d'etre, its reason for being, was to confront the Soviet and the Chinese godless communist systems. And here comes Nixon pushing for detente with the, with the Soviet and opening China. So let's play number three. Let's play number three. What was your uh, reaction when you finally heard that the invitation to come to Peking was being extended from Zhou Enlai? Well, we had had several messages, feelers on it up to that time, and, and each one of them we had to reject. Uh, Zhou Enlai had sent messages uh, indicating that he had heard from the Pakistanis, uh, Ceausescu, uh, sent us a message indicating that he'd heard from the Chinese, but in each case, the Chinese were conditioning any meeting or any change in relationship on our, frankly, dumping Taiwan. And they were also conditioning any meeting that might occur between me and uh, Joe and Lai on our agreeing to have Taiwan as the major subject of discussion, and I could not agree to that. So we kept saying, no, it would have to be without conditions, in effect. And finally, the message came through that Zhou Enlai uh, would welcome us. Who brought you the news? And the news was brought by Henry Kissinger. It was after a state dinner, and I was up in the Lincoln City Room uh, going over my notes for the next day's meetings, and Henry came in huffing and puffing. He, he must have run all the way from the Situation Room, which is about 200 yards away from the sitting room and the President's. And he said, this is the most important message between heads of government since World War II. And then he read the message. As I read it, he beamed, and the message, in effect, said, uh, uh, we uh, will welcome uh, the President of the United States uh, to meet with uh, Joe and Lai, uh, and then we will also welcome Dr. Kissinger to come to prepare for the meeting. And he said this uh, message, he had a, it, with their great sense of humor and their subtlety, it ended with an interesting clause. He says this message is somewhat different from the usual diplomatic message because it's from ahead, to ahead, through ahead. From ahead, head of state or government, Joe and Lai. Through ahead, of course, was Yahya, Pakistan, to ahead. The message, of course, since we had no relations with China, didn't come from the Chinese. The Pakistani ambassador had delivered it to Henry Kissinger and then Kissinger to me. So it was from ahead, through ahead, to ahead. You know, this is uh, something, uh, you know, I play that piece just as a, to set the stage. This man had a gravitas to him. Reagan had gravitas. Bush the senior had gravitas. And boy, it fell off the cliff after that when we got to Bill Clinton. Our leaders got trite. Because, you know, we've been getting dumbed down, and when we get dumbed down, we get dumb leaders. Nixon was an experienced, thoughtful man. I'm not saying he wasn't tricky dick, and I'm saying I'm not saying I know if he was a crook or not. What I'm gonna say about Nixon is he confronted the administrative state and the military industrial complex 
by opening China, by ending the war in Vietnam. And I'll tell you what he did relative to the administrative state. He proposed something just before the Watergate thing broke, which was a bunch of CIA agents that got caught in that Democrat uh, National Committee office. Uh, Go back and look at it. I mean, we need to look at this again. He proposed closing down huge swaths of the federal government and pushing those administrative functions back into the states and giving block grants to the states to operate the administrative functions that had been aggregated at the federal level. I mean, this was a novel at the time, a repudiation. He was ideologically repudiating the New Deal, which had aggregated all the power up into Washington, created the Emerald City. And what am I drawing out here? What's President Trump doing? He's fighting the people that want endless wars. Look what happened. We had four years of peace, four years of prosperity. We've had Biden for three years. We're broke and we're at war. Come on. Who are these people? Could you see a more stark contrast between prosperity and peace and being broke and being at war? Choose them. You pick them. Now, I've got a very young, probably very uh, liberal young man here. I mean, I was liberal when I was young, too. There's that old saying, if you're uh, not a liberal when you're young, you don't have a heart. And if you're not a conservative when you get older, you don't have a brain. That's a pretty good, you know, meme. But Trump and Nixon were doing the same things. And they got the same result. A bunch of liberal lawyers tore both of these sons of guns apart. And in the term, in the case, of course, the jury's out on Trump, literally. In terms of Nixon, they crushed him. They crushed him. And it was never, and you go back and look at it, and I looked at it very carefully since I saw you last. It was never proven that he knew anything about that burglary, and it was never proven that he knew anything about that cover-up. But the press, the press painted this guy with a black brush, made him into a criminal, and the Congress, which impeached him, just like Trump was impeached many times, the 91st Congress, which was during his first term, the Senate was 59% Democrat and 41% Republican. The House was 56.1% Democrat and 43.9% Republican. I mean, this is Democrat-Democrat in the Congress. And in the 92nd Congress, 56% Democrat in the Senate and 586 Democrat in the House. I mean, how do you win on deals like that? In other words, it's politics. It's not about right or wrong. It's just who's left, and they took him out. Now, he might have been dirty. He might have been into it. I don't know. It's something we have to continue to research, and there's still documentation that's not released. But did you know, and if you go look at it, when they were investigating the special prosecutor's office that was set up, like we've had special prosecutors to investigate Trump, we had spe- there's a special prosecutor right now who's running a prosecution of Trump in Washington. Well, they had a special prosecutor for Nixon and for Watergate. And these people violated every, not every, but they violated some of the fundamental canons of jurisprudence. Like, for example, the prosecutor's not supposed to talk to the judge except in the courtroom. No going around the back door. But all these guys were all liberal Democrat lawyers. They all went to Harvard together. They were all palsies. 
So they were meeting, you know, for coffee and talking about what the next play was. Prosecutors were showing up in the grand jury room. Oh, that's a bad one. These convictions that happened and these trials that happened were completely illegitimate. It was a railroad job, and the press was in on it, and the lawyers were in on it, and here's Nixon, could have been guilty, could have been innocent. But what was he doing? He was taking away the reason that the military-industrial complex was in business, which was to fight the Russians and the Chinese. Oh, look what happened. Here we are again. Who are we fighting? The Russians and the Ukraine, and China's our number one threat. You know, like nothing changed. Nixon tried to change it. He tried with everything he had. I don't, you know, whatever his other issues are, which we could take many podcasts and go through all of his other issues, and they were profound. This guy was uh, out there. Let's take a look at number uh, four. Let's watch number four. The week that changed the world. On Nixon July 15th, China. 1971, President Nixon requested time on national TV. The announcement I shall now read is being issued simultaneously in Peking and in the United States. Knowing of President Nixon's expressed desire to visit the People's Republic of China, Premier Cho Enlai, on behalf of the government of the People's Republic of China, has extended an invitation to President Nixon to visit China. The effect was electric. The idea was almost unimaginable. The Washington Post said, if Mr. Nixon had revealed he was going to the moon, he could not have flabbergasted his world audience more. The Cold War was raging. In Southeast Asia, China was North Vietnam's ally, and Richard Nixon's credentials as an anti-communist were longstanding and impeccable. But in the fall of 1967, Nixon wrote a seminal article about Asia after Vietnam. Taking the long view, he wrote, we simply cannot afford to leave China forever outside the family of nations. There is no place on this small planet for a billion of its potentially most able people to live in angry isolation. In January 1969, in his first inaugural address, President Nixon confirmed his determination to change America's policy toward China. We seek an open world, a world in which no people, great or small, will live in angry isolation. On February 17, 1972, after two years of secret and delicate negotiations, the President and First Lady were on their way to China. Premier Zhou Enlai was waiting at Beijing. In 1954, the U.S. Secretary of State had snubbed the then Foreign Minister. Nixon wrote in his memoirs, I knew that Joe had been deeply insulted by Foster Dulles's refusal to shake hands with him. When I reached the bottom of the steps, therefore, I made a point of extending my hand as I walked toward him. When our hands met, one era ended and another began. A few hours later, the president met with Chairman Mao Zedong. The 79-year-old leader was in frail health, but the lively hour-long meeting included philosophy, history, and banter. Mao said, I voted for you during your last election. Nixon said, I think the most important thing to note is that in America, at least at this time, those on the right can do what those on the left can only talk about. Throughout his career, Richard Nixon always reserved time for strategic thinking, 
making and refining extensive notes on yellow pads. In preparation for his China trip, he considered all the possible permutations of policy involved. What they want, what we want, what we both want. At the Great Hall of the People, the President and the Premier exchanged toasts. That in your toast, the Chinese people are a great people. The American people are a great people. We have, at times in the past, been enemies. We have great differences today. What brings us together is that we have common interests which transcend those differences. At the end of the trip, diplomatic ground was broken with the Shanghai communique. After covering the points on which both sides had reached agreement, they proceeded to detail their different positions on all the other outstanding issues. Nixon referred to this in his final toast to Shanghai on the eve of his departure. That communique will make headlines around the world tomorrow. But what we have said in that communique is not nearly as important as what we will do in the years ahead. We have been here a week. This was the week that changed the world. During a visit to the Great Wall, the president reflected on the purpose and potential of the trip. When one stands there and sees the, the wall going to the peak of this mountain, and I think that you would have to conclude that this is a great wall and that it had to be built by a great people. I think one of the results of our trip, we hope, may be that uh, the walls that are erected, uh, whether they are physical walls like this or whether they are other walls of ideology or philosophy, uh, will not divide peoples in the world. Uh, that peoples, regardless of their differences in backgrounds and their philosophies, will have an opportunity to communicate with each, with each other, to know each other, uh, and to share with each other uh, those particular endeavors that will mean peaceful progress in the years ahead. After President Nixon returned home, Claire Booth Luce told him that a thousand years from now, they will say of you, he went to China. And it began 40 years ago with a week that changed the world. It's cool, isn't it? Isn't that cool? I mean, here's a man taking on the military-industrial complex. What do you think the Joint Chiefs thought about this trip? What do you think the people that sold military hardware to the U.S. government thought about this trip? Or him winding down the war in Vietnam, which was concluded in 73 also, he actually ended the draft. Richard Nixon discontinued the draft. Richard Nixon desegregated the South. Richard Nixon was an ardent supporter of the environment. He started the Environmental Protection Agency. And people will say that it's administrative state BS, and it is today, but not when he started it. I remember when I was young, a river caught on fire. Think about what I'm telling you. The pollution was so bad in a river. It was, it was a river in Ohio. The river caught on fire and burnt for weeks. The river caught on fire. Come on. We needed some help. The American people were tired of being poisoned, and Nixon actually confronted the chemical industrial complex. This man was not simple. It's like Donald Trump. Donald Trump is not simple. Donald Trump's got a lot of things that Professor Penn is not happy about. 
But what does he want to do? What did both of them have in common? They wanted peace. Now, there could have been ulterior motives. Yes, yes, I get it. Please, you're putting in the live chat right now all kinds of negative things about Nixon. I know that. I have the right, working with you, to tell a story from a street corner. There's three other street corners. I get it. He had Kissinger with him. I get it. Took us off the gold standard. I get it. But let's not look at a complex figure through a very simple lens. Let's let the complexity come through. This man took on the administrative state and the military-industrial complex. Here, let's just go, just to, don't take my word for it. Let's take number six, please, number six. You have to begin to see what Nixon's plan was after the, the election. And there you get a better sense of his view that this is the last time that we're going to be able to take on the centralized bureaucratic apparatus and be able to hold it back. John, if, um, if Richard Nixon were a character in a Western, who would he be? Simon <laughs> Legree? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say. Uh, uh, I don't know. In, in, a, in a John Ford Western? Yes. Maybe a Mose Harper? Or something. <laughs> <laughs> hard to cast. Yeah, uh, he would, I would be think. hard to cast. He's uh, a, a complicated figure in many ways. Well, what, what should we... Um, particularly, what should conservatives think about Richard Nixon? He was certainly not beloved by the American right wing no. at the time when he no. was president, or even before he was no. uh, president. Um, there, was a, there was a lot of disappointment, obviously, at how his presidency ended. Sure, sure. But what, uh, you're, you're uh, a man who's uh, who studied that period. Mm -hmm. What do you what do you uh, what do you well, make I, of him in retrospect? I think Nixon was at the center of the two greatest controversies in the post World War II period. Nixon comes out of the war, runs as a Republican from uh, California in 1946, in a time when politics is dominated by Roosevelt and the and the New mm -hmm. Deal. It's a time when. Uh, Socialism, communism, uh, uh, the, 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 many of the intellectuals in America were very hus uh, 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 willing and, and uh, very hospitable to socialism. And it was hard to draw a line between socialism and communism. Mm -hmm. And it was harder still to draw a line between the, 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 uh, 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 the communism that was backed by the Soviet Union. Uh, and its influence in America. Now, I think Nixon brought the problem of domestic communism to the fore mm -hmm. in American politics in a way no one had done. And that earned him a great deal of enmity in the Hiss uh, case uh, and in the way in which he brought uh, that to the attention of the American people. Because you, when you look at the 1930s, you look at American intellectuals, Many of them were, were very willing to 
extend the, the, the powers of American government uh, uh, far beyond anything that had ever been done. Nixon, Nixon was still in many ways, even though he thought that government should be powerful, I think he was an opponent of, however he understood it, administrative centralization. Mm -hmm. Because he knew that it would be difficult to hold political officers accountable once the power moved from the, po the political to the administrative realm. So Nixon's other, the other thing that he brought to the fore is I think he's the first real systematic opponent of the New Deal in, in American politics. Not in a, in, a, in a really coherent way, but in a way, let's put it this way. If you look at Eisenhower's presidency, Eisenhower did not want to politicize mm -hmm. the New Deal. He did not want to politicize what it was that Roosevelt had done or what the Democratic Party had right. done, and even expanded it. I mean, what, what Eisenhower called modern republicanism was really republicanism that had made its peace with the New Deal. Yeah. And in fact, he expanded in a way that even the New Deal didn't when he created the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. Because right. mm -hmm. you remember, the New Deal was preoccupied still with, with, with national defense, and many of the resources, or most of the resources of the federal government were still used primarily in terms of defense. Once you start the, po the, pro the possibility of creating federal monies for health, education, and welfare, mm -hmm then of course you, you're moving in a direction toward changing the priorities of, of those who, are, who hold offices in America because you have the possibility of subsidizing constituencies. Nixon was, in other words, what, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting is Nixon understood. In fact, he said the election of 1960, in his mind, the, 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 was election, the, was the, um, the election was about whether or not we want a free society or bureaucratic society. Mm -hmm. He said John Kennedy will usher in a bureaucratic society. That's he wanted good. Thank to you very a free much. Thank society. You. So you see, things are not uh, tremendously different today than they were then. What's different is the technology. The technology is different. Our, our species' ability to destroy is enhanced by technology, and our species' ability to control is enhanced by technology, digital technology. So we have more command and control and more ability to kill. But the issues, the issues have not changed. So we get Nixon, I'm just trying to lay it out that I didn't make it up for myself. You can go find it for yourself. And I'm always saying you got to go find it for yourself because then it's really going to resonate with you. A complex character who took on the administrative state and took on the military-industrial complex, Donald Trump. No, Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon. And in both cases, both cases, and from whatever street corner you want to sit on, you can make a case that these people were both criminals. Or you can make the case that they were both cast as criminals because of the threat they posed to entrenched power interests. And we, the people, we're sitting here, we're playing video games and not paying attention. And this is our asses on the line here. You know, I was thinking, you know, I've been to China, I've said this, I've probably been there, I mean, well over 100 times. I know a lot about Chinese culture, and uh, I know a lot of Chinese people. I have a 
really extensive history there and a wide network of resource there. And there are some very thoughtful, very good people who are Chinese that I like very much. I mean, faces are coming into my mind. Now, they're the minority. These were the people in China that actually treated me very respectfully. It's an ethno-nationalist country. There's a lot of people that don't like Americans because of the propaganda and also for good reason. Let us remember that the colonial powers, including the United States of America, occupied China to extract wealth in a colonial enterprise there. So they have a reason to be anti-American. They had to throw off the yoke of colonialism no different than we the people threw off the yoke of colonialism in 1776. But as we've said over and over again, the Europeans occupied our minds through education. And one could say, because it's a Marxist country, that European ideology also influenced China. So this European ideology was exported along with colonialism and has had a very caustic effect on world affairs. It's divided the people. You know, in World War II, the United States and China were strong allies. The United States fought with China against the Japanese. The United States, we the people, fought with the Russians against the Germans. What's happened here? How have our allies become our enemies? These are critical issues that we need to sort through. Because I'm going to tell you, we don't have to be enemies with the Chinese people. We just don't. And you say, well, the, and here was the scam back going back to Nixon. If we open to China and we let the Chinese do business with us, and you've heard this before, they're going to become more like us when, in fact, we become more like them. And why is that? Because we're not doing our work here. We don't have borders, spiritual borders inside of ourselves. When the Chinese people look at the American people, what they see is a bunch of lazy people that want things for free that they don't deserve. That the American people don't remember poverty in whole because the government is redistributing wealth and there isn't a lot of poverty. There's poverty, but it's not the kind of bone-crushing poverty that the Chinese people have worked their way out of over the last 30 years, 40 years, since Nixon opened the country opened up trade between our countries. And, uh, you know, I know Chinese people that when they grew up, they didn't have indoor plumbing. I mean, that was not unusual. When I first started going to China, there was no cars. People were on foot. I, and I've said this before. I remember the first overweight Chinese person I saw because nobody was overweight because everybody walked everywhere. And, man, they were a backwater. And I don't think the American people and the American institutions are getting the kind of um, respect from the Chinese people for what we've done for the Chinese people. We individual Americans buy their goods, share our, our ideas, share our academic institutions. We have done a very beautiful thing with China going back to Nixon that we can't have a billion people cut off from the family of nations. That's a very beautiful idea. Chinese have their own sins and flat spots and issues, not the least of which is hatred of the West, not the least of which is they have a reason to hate the West. 
So this thing spirals on. How could we improve relationship with China? You know, if the Chinese looked at the American people and we were faithful and hardworking and had spiritual borders and had a functioning society that was ordered and stable and loving and kind and health-producing and well-being-producing, oh, they'd say, we want to get in on that. We want some of that because that's what it was like in the 70s and 80s and the 90s when I first got involved with the Chinese. They wanted what we had, and we gave it to them, and they took it. Both things happened. But now they look at us and they see a dissipated country that feels entitled, that's not hardworking, that's financialized its country just like the English did before their empire was replaced. We're still all over the world meddling in everybody's affairs. And they're just saying, no, we're not going to do that anymore. And I agree with the Chinese in the sense that why are we meddling in everybody else's affairs? Why are we doing that? What's the benefit to my family? Forever wars, debt, no borders. What's the benefit to my family? There's no benefit. Let's go over this again and again. And I'm doing this because this will allow all of us to talk to our liberal friends and neighbors and family members. The Democrat stands on three ideas. Climate change, social equity, and democracy. Climate change requires the decarbonization of the world, which is inflationary in the extreme. Inflationary in the extreme. So all these things you're seeing in the news that inflation's under control, that's not true. That's propaganda. We're decarbonizing, and that's inherently inflationary, which means climate change. If you love the earth enough to be poor, you vote Democrat, because you will be poor. And social equity gives you a reason to be poor because why should you have more money than a black person who was brought here as a slave? That's not right on its face, right? Particularly to young people, the differences that come in a society with freedom, some people are better at freedom than others. Well, if we're going to have to give up our wealth to save the planet, we have a good reason to give it up to make things equitable. And then there's democracy, the highest form of governance in world history. And we're going to go all over the world and kill people to defend it. Great. Sounds a little bit like dictatorship to me. Why would people that are peace-loving people be out? If our ideology was so good, why are we continuously going to war to defend it? If it was so good, people would want to be part of it. And maybe that's because it's been perverted. The post-World War II Democrat liberal order is a perverse caricature of America. It's not America. It's European. Did you notice Rick's, Nixon was writing an article in a journal about the future relations with China after Vietnam? It was the Journal of Foreign Affairs. You can't get any more Atlanticist or European than the Journal of Foreign Affairs. You know, we've got to understand that we no longer have an authentic American ideology. How can we ever get out of this trap if the things that are in our heads are not even our own? They're put in our heads by European intellectuals that don't want us 
to be free. They do not believe in God. They don't want us to have rights granted to us by a creator. That stands in complete contrast to their statism where man's intellect, man's intellect is the top dog in the, in the dog pound. So this is, this is what we're facing. We're facing a battle really of ideas, and we're taught not to think. We're facing a competition of philosophy, and we don't know how to read. We're facing intellectual traditions that go back thousands of years, and we're watching reels. And do you think that's an accident? Because the people that are running things, oh, they're not watching reels. I'm not saying they're not going to Pornhub. As a matter of fact, they do all the nastiest that you can think of and then stand up there like they're leading us. No, leaders need to have sacred honor because we want to follow something that makes us well. When our leadership no longer has sacred honor, we're following people that are leading us into perdition, into sickness, into unwellness. That's why it's so important to get back to these American ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness granted to us by a creator so that we have the kind of spiritual borders internally that will lead us to a better future, a more healthy future, a more human future. Well, Nixon, Nixon took on these forces, these powerful forces, just like President Trump has done. And he found himself in a huge scandal called Watergate, and the country was gripped by it. And he was uh, seeking support in a Congress that was Democrat. Those people did not care about right or wrong, only who was left. You know, war does not determine who was right or wrong, only who's left. And then the people that are left write the history books. So we're left with the Nixon whose accomplishments are really underplayed, who is thought of as a crook, uh, part of the discrediting of the Republican Party. And really, as you heard, he was really not of any party. He, he was like Trump. He had ideas that were all of his own. It was a Nixonian kind of presidency. He wasn't a far righty. He wasn't a lefty. He was cutting his own direction. And what was his own direction? Power to the people. And let's get this endless war finished. He ended the draft. And boom, here comes Watergate. And you go look at that. And most of the Watergate burglars were CIA, act, you know, active CIA. And he had taken on the power structure and they got rid of him. They got rid of him. And he didn't help himself because, you know, he had bad people around him. But, you know, just like Trump, think of Trump in that first term. Think of all the bad people that were around Trump. Bad, bad people. You know, when, if Trump gets a chance to come back, he's going to have a different crew. And Nixon, Nixon won re-election in a landslide and kept that crew there. And that crew was very paranoid because they knew the administrative state was after him. They knew it. So things are, are complex. They're not simple. They require discernment and careful study, but he was impeached and he went to Carl Albert, who was a, the Speaker of the House, who was a Mason, and uh, his vice president was a Mason and everybody around him was a Mason, which I'm not even going to tell you what that means. You have to study it for yourself. And all this Masonic energy was around him that said, you got to go, buddy. And he resigned. He resigned. 
in shame, and he was subject to prosecution. And the new president, President Ford, who was a creature of the state, served on the Warren Commission. Well, you can't get any more state-supported than serving on the Warren Commission. And we've talked about that, the Warren Commission that said President Kennedy was killed by one lone gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald. And, you know, pretty much now we know that that's a suspicious conclusion. President Ford pardoned President Nixon. Can you please play number seven? Mr. Ford, you stated that uh, the theory on which you pardoned uh, Richard Nixon was that he had suffered enough. And I am interested in that theory because the logical consequence of that is that somebody who resigns in the face of virtually certain impeachment or somebody who is impeached should not be punished because the impeachment or the resignation in face of impeachment is punishment enough. And I wondered whether anybody had brought to your attention the fact that the Constitution specifically say, states that even though somebody is impeached, that person shall nonetheless be liable to punishment according to law. Uh, Mrs. Holtzman, I was fully cognizant of uh, the fact that the president, uh, on resignation, uh, was accountable uh, for any criminal charges. Uh, but I would like to say that the reason I gave the pardon was not as to Mr. Nixon himself. I repeat, and I repeat with emphasis, the purpose of the pardon was to try and get the United States, the Congress, the President, and the American people focusing on the serious problems we have both at home and abroad. And I was absolutely convinced then, as I am now, that if we had had this series an indictment, a trial, a conviction, and anything else that transpired after that, that the attention of the President, the Congress, and the American people would have been diverted from the problems that we have to solve. And that was the principal reason for my granting of the pardon. Ms. Smith. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, you know, uh, there's another way to think about this. If he hadn't pardoned Nixon, and he would have had a fair trial by a jury of his peers, he might have been acquitted. And then what would have happened? Because Ford was a swamp creature of the highest order on the Warren Commission. All of these administrative state creatures that you saw there in that hearing were the very Democrats that were the inheritors of the New Deal. We, the people today in 2023, at the end of the year, we are still living under the quote-unquote New Deal. What's the New Deal? We're no longer free. We've given up our freedom to be dependent on a government. And it's possible that when that idea was first proposed, it was proposed with the best of intentions by men of goodwill. By men of goodwill that really wanted to have a community in the United States where one took care of another. It's all, you know, it's a, almost a Christian concept. It, in fact, it is. You know, I'm my brother's keeper. Am I my brother's keeper? That's a great question from Cain and Abel. Am I my brother's keeper? And there was this sentiment that we needed to take care of each other. 
and was not a bad sentiment. But it missed a point that's become very obvious to me, and I want to share it with you. No matter the good intent at the beginning, the result is we're ruled by evil people. They lie to us. They are not concerned about my well-being. They're not concerned about the well-being of my children. They don't even care about the United States of America. And why do I say that? Because I look at, their re- I look at the fruit of their effort. $34 trillion of debt, an open border, and an endless war. There is no way my leadership cares about me, American citizen David Penn. They just don't. They have other agendas. So no matter how well-meaning was Franklin Roosevelt when he brought the New Deal forward, the New Deal has turned into a new shackle that is now surrounding me and making me poor and subject to tyranny. So we have these two presidents, Nixon and Trump, who both have faced tremendous opposition in their effort to bring about peace and prosperity. Peace and prosperity. Let's look at all the other presidents, and we'll do it going forward. They had other goals, other goals, internationalist goals. But these two presidents, Trump and Nixon, even within the context of their internationalism, they were concerned about America maintaining its republic and the freedom of the American people. So as we move into this new year, this potent year, 2024, I will say that for me, this is yet again another opportunity where we can work to maintain the republic, to maintain our self-governance. So please, give yourself over. I have given myself over to being involved in the political process because it is my duty as a citizen in a self-governing nation. It is my duty to do so, and I'm doing it, and what I found is I'm healthier, I'm more alive, I'm living for my country at a moment of great peril and great opportunity, and everyone that's listening can work your way through to this place where I'm at, where we are going to recognize the benefits from living in a country where a creator has granted us unalienable rights. I want to wish you a very healthy and happy new year. I'm asking for your work, for your commitment, and it's about peer-to-peer. It's about talking to the people that we know and often that we love. We want it to be very simple. We're going to be poor of spirit and poor of material, or we're going to be rich in the spirit and rich in material. It's a very simple choice. It's a very fundamental question we have to answer. What is the best future for my family? Freedom and self-governance or servitude and submission to a globalist governance? That's the question of 2024. I know this audience is clear about its decision in this regard, but what about all the people we know? 
What about all the young people that don't understand the issues, that don't understand the history? So we have a lot of work to do, and let's do it with great joy and great intensity. Thank you for being part of the Professor Penn Podcast and the Free People of America community. I look forward to seeing you in the live chat. If you are an officer of the Minnesota Republican Party, get in touch with me. We're doing this with intention. Thank you very much for joining. Let's go out with a little music. Can you just play, just for a little jam, uh, the uh, second, the not the bells, the other one, just to go out with a jam. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you.